This morning's reading comes from the letter to the Romans, and that can be found on page 1128. So Romans chapter 1 and the first seven verses. I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. A big thank you to, to Steve for reading that passage from Romans. Uh, and also a big thank you to the members of the music team as well. You know, one of the things we don't do very often is publicly thank the people who Sunday by Sunday uh, lead our worship Sunday by Sunday. So thank you to you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and also thank you to everyone else who shares in leading our worship as well Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. Uh, but I'm very grateful to Steve for reading those opening verses from Romans. Uh, my name is David Doherty. I'm a member of the staff team here and uh, I have the opportunity to start what is a new series of sermons looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, of course, it wouldn't be BH if we didn't take a break from Romans from time to time. But the book of Romans is the, the thing that we're going to be going back to in our morning services over the next few weeks and months. And if you like, it's going to be our, uh, our constant companion uh, over the next few months. And today we start by looking at the first verses uh, of Paul's letter to the Romans. So let's ask God to help us, not just today, but also to help us as we look at this book over the next few weeks and months. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write it, that you so ordained that it would be part of our scripture. Heavenly Father, we thank you that so many Christians down so many centuries have found this book helpful. And Father, we pray this morning and in the weeks ahead, we also would find the book of the Romans helpful to us helpful to encourage us, helpful to strengthen our faith, helpful to guide us as we live for you day by day. Amen. Amen. Um, of Paul's letters, um, the book of Romans is perhaps a little unusual because unlike most of Paul's letters, it was sent to a church that Paul hadn't visited yet. Most of the letters that Paul wrote were sent to churches that he knew well, uh, places that he had spent time in, individuals he'd got to know, situations that he'd come to understand. And very often the letters that he wrote to these churches were, if you like, follow-up letters. They were following up the ministry that he'd had in person. Uh, they were there to help or to encourage or to perhaps challenge those churches. But the letter to the church in Rome is different. When it was written, Paul had still to visit Rome. We know he got there, but he hadn't got there yet. 
Uh, although if you look at chapter 16, it's obvious that while Paul hadn't visited this church, he obviously knew a lot of people there and he counted them as his friends. So why was he writing to this group of Christians in the city of Rome? Well, partly it was to tell them of his concern for them, to assure them of his plan to visit when he could. Indeed, you could say that in part this letter is is an apology for the fact that he hadn't been able to do it yet. But this letter is a whole lot more than that. Later on in chapter 1, Paul tells the Christians living in Rome that the reason the planned visit the reason for his planned visit is not just to catch up with old friends. He'd heard about the faith of the Roman Christians. He was praying for them. He wanted to be encouraged by meeting them face to face. But also, as he puts it in verse 11, a little after as Steve's reading finished, he wanted to visit them so that he could impart to them some spiritual gift to make them strong. He wanted to help the church in Rome grow stronger in following Jesus. And because he couldn't be with them in person, you can see this letter as if you like the first installment of that spiritual gift he wanted to share with them. This gift to help them make strong. Spiritual gifts. What do you think of when you think of spiritual gifts? Well, you probably think of the latter chapters of a book like 1 Corinthians, where it talks about all sorts of spiritual gifts. Talks about things like gifts of healing, the message of knowledge, miraculous powers or prophecy. And all those things are in the Bible. But the book of Romans reminds us that there are other gifts to make us strong too. And in this letter, Paul is sharing the spiritual gift of understanding. Understanding of the good news of the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. About being rescued from the consequences of our wrongdoing, being saved from an eternity without God. But it's not only understanding that Paul shares, as well as understanding the other big thing that Paul gives us in this book is enthusiasm. <laughs> a long time ago, I read a book that described Romans as the closest thing to systematic theology we have in the New Testament. Well, no disrespect to people who write systematic theology, but how much fun is that? Now, it's true that in the book of Romans, Paul does give us a step-by-step understanding of the good news of the Lord Jesus. And it's certainly true that from time to time, we may have to do a little bit of work to understand uh, some of the background to some of the issues that Paul is actually engaging with. But, you know... When you read the book of Romans, it's not dull. When you read it, it feels as if it was written quickly, easily. It's written by someone who's really excited about what he's writing about. You can't help feel the passion, the enthusiasm, the exuberance. This was a letter to people that Paul cared about. And he wanted to share with them something that he thought was really, really wonderful. The wonderful things that God had done for them. And, you know, you can see this in the introduction to the letter, which was all that Steve read for us this morning. In the first century, it was the convention that when you were writing a letter, you started off by saying who you were. You then said who you were sending the letter to. And then you'd probably have a a polite greeting. I suppose it's a bit like email, you know, to, from, subject. Just the same in the first century. But, you know, even there... 
Paul gets carried away. He can't even sort of do the, the formality of opening up the letter without sharing something of, something of how he sees himself, something of how he sees the church, and quite a lot about how he sees the gospel. How does Paul see himself? I suppose today there's a tendency to kind of revere Paul and, and put him on some kind of pedestal. Uh, some people will, will call him Saint Paul. Uh, there's certainly, by common consent, uh, he's somebody who's regarded as a, a foundational Christian figure. Uh, even people who don't agree what, with what he says would agree that he was an influential figure in the development of Christian thought, and indeed some would suggest even of Western society. Someone who had an enormous influence in lots and lots of different ways. Somebody who's remembered 2000s later, 2000 years later. But what's interesting is the way that Paul sees himself. In verse 1, the first thing that he says about himself is that he's a servant, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, in other translations, if you're familiar with them, you'll know that the word that's translated here, servant, is sometimes translated bond servant or, or sometimes even slave. Now, before we get too hung up on the distinction between those different terms, let's remember that in the Roman Empire, frankly, there wasn't a tremendous amount of difference between being a slave and being a servant. Most sermons, most servants in the Roman Empire were slaves. That was the reality of it. And the key thing about them, whatever they were called, servants or bond servants or slaves, the key thing about them was that they were the people who did the work. Do you know why the Colosseum was built in Rome? It was built because Roman citizens, people who weren't slaves, were bored. They had nothing to do because it was the slaves who did all the work. And the Colosseum was built to distract Roman citizens so that they didn't start thinking about sedition or revolt or revolution or something like that. It was the slaves, it was the servants and they were the people who did the work. How did Paul see himself? He saw himself first and foremost as a worker. Now, in the first century, servants, slaves, call them what you will, could be given positions of great responsibility. But they didn't have much choice in the matter. Uh, there was no point having a career plan. What they did was down to the decision of their master. They could lose their position and all the privileges that went with it in an instant. Now, of course, Paul goes on to say in verse 1 that he'd been called to God to do something that was important, something with, with enormous responsibility. He'd been called to be an apostle and set apart from the gospel of God. Uh, set apart from the gospel of God probably means that one of the things that God had called him to do was to tell people, especially people from a non-Jewish, a Gentile background, uh, about Jesus and call them to put their trust in him. Again, if you look down a little bit further on in chapter 1, you'll see that one of the things that Paul wanted to do in Rome was to have a harvest amongst the Roman church just as he'd had amongst all the other Gentiles. In other words, to tell Gentiles in Rome about Jesus and see men and women putting their trust in God. Now, this was big work, big responsibility, but Paul hadn't lost his sense of perspective. While he was called to be an apostle, he knew that ultimately 
he was only a worker. And again, if you look at chapter 16, some of the time perhaps, you'll see that Paul recognized that there were lots of other people like him in the church in Rome already. People working for God, engaged in the same function as he was, doing God's work. And there are lots of people here at Bishop Hannington who help to do the work that needs to be done. Has it ever occurred to you that your situation is basically the same as Paul's? You know, we put Paul on this sort of pedestal and revere him. But has it ever occurred to you that, you know, whatever you're doing, in God's sight, you're on the same level. You're a worker doing whatever it is that God has asked you to do. And because it's God who's called and enabled you, in God's sight, what you do is significant too. We're all just doing the work that God wants us to do. But there's another side to this, you know. If we're all workers, we need to be careful not to let our calling go to our heads. I mean, here I am standing in front of Bishop Hannington Church. In theory, I have the undivided attention of over a hundred people. It's important that I don't get too attached to that. You know, because there will come a time when God no longer wants me to do that. When perhaps he wants me to do something completely different. I mean, you know, in my time, that's what's happened from time to time. I've been doing one thing and then, well, God's taken me into something else. Now, how do I react to that? Do I react by feeling grumpy and sorry for myself because God has taken something away from me that, well, I was quite attached to and quite enjoyed doing? Or do I accept that, um, well, I'm a worker uh, and I do the work that God asks me to do. And if that changes, well, I've got a good master. I've got the best master. And that change of role, that change of calling, that change of function doesn't change what I'm fundamentally here to do, to do God's work. Paul never forgot that. No matter how much he did for God, he always remembered what he really was. He was a worker. But you know, while Paul downplays himself, when it comes to the church and the people who make up the church, it's different. How does Paul see the church? How does Paul see the people who make up the church? Well, they're special. Did you notice how he speaks of them in verse 7? To all in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be his holy people. Paul's calling is to be an apostle. The church's calling is to be holy. For Paul, his status is to be a servant of Christ Jesus. But the church's status, the church's status is that they're loved by God. If you watched the royal wedding, you may remember these words. There's a certain sense in which when you are loved and you know it, when someone cares for you and you know it, when you love and you show it, it actually feels right. And that's what the church is. That's what each one of us who are members of God's church are. We are loved by God and it's right. It makes us special. What does it mean to be, to be loved by God? Well, of course, being loved means lots of things, but surely one of the things it means is closeness. God's no longer a distant, 
figure, stern or forbidding or serious or whatever caricature you might have in your mind about what God is like. God's not like that. A love without closeness, frankly, doesn't make sense. And each one of us who, through faith in Jesus, is a member of the church, we are close to God. Being loved means concern. It's a characteristic of love, is it not, that, well, you carry other people's burdens. Their worries, well, they're your worries, aren't they? Uh, Their problems are things that you wish you could solve for them. If they're hurt, you feel their pain. And that's how God feels about you. He's bothered by what bothers you. But being loved also means investment. If you're a parent, you will either remember, or this is something to look forward to, the time when you set up an independent taxi company. You know, do you remember it if you've had children who are teenagers? When you were running your teenagers here, there, and everywhere, until you gave them a bike and a mobile phone and taxi company was closed down. But that's what you do for your children, isn't it? You invest time and energy and effort in them. And that's what God does for you. You are worth his time. But finally, being loved means engagement. After all, if you wanted to help your son or daughter with their maths, it might be better to get them a tutor. But it's not what you do, is it? You spend time trying to remember the maths you've forgotten. Because you want to spend time with them. You want to personally engage with them. And God wants to engage with you. God didn't love the world so much that he sent a tutor or a coach or a mentor. No, he came in person. And he still relates to us as a person because he wants to know what we think. He wants to be with us. He wants to engage with us. He wants to know how we feel. He wants to communicate with us and listen to us. Now, of course, much of what I've said could be said about human love. Many of the examples I've cited are all about human love, aren't they? But there is one difference. Human beings are not always perfect, are they? Um, Human relationships are disappointing and sometimes they don't go well. Today's Father's Day. And for everyone who could speak about having had a positive relationship with their father, there are perhaps some who would have to say that, well, their relationship wasn't everything it could be. That's the reality of of human relationships. But God's love is perfect. Our status is special because we are loved perfectly by God, but we are human and our response to God's love is, is seldom perfect. And so we are called to work at it. Our calling is to be God's holy people. The underlying idea behind the word holy is it's not about being terribly terribly religious or or being too good to be true i mean there's probably something to be said for both of those things but that's not really what it's about Uh, the key idea of being holy is this idea about being well having a change of focus having a focus that's concentrated on god It's about being different in a good way. It's about our focus. It's about our agenda. It's about what's really important to us. It's what Paul was talking about in in the letter to the Colossians, in chapter 3, when he spoke about setting your hearts on, on things above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Or as Jesus put it even more memorably in the Sermon on the Mount, don't store up for yourself treasure on earth. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. 
And we've already seen an example of this, haven't we? You know, one of the things that's striking about what the New Testament talks about when it talks about the church, when it talks about God's kingdom, is the fact that God's kingdom, the church, works differently from other Christian or from other organizations. You know, most organizations, no matter how noble and worthy they may be, inevitably position and status and prestige and sort of getting somewhere near the top, it's very difficult to get out of it, isn't it? I mean, you saw President Trump and President Kim in Singapore last week. And, you know, so much elevation of these two individuals, so much emphasizing of their status and allegedly each of them trying to sort of outdo the other one in terms of making an impact and presenting and projecting themselves. And that's how organizations work. You know, even if it's simply a community group, you have this tendency where people are looking for position and looking for status. What was Paul's attitude towards status? We've already seen that. He saw himself as a worker. He was there not about status. He was there about service. It's all about streaking to have that different focus, that different mindset, that different agenda, exercising that calling to be holy. We're loved by God. What more status do we want? But we're called. We're called to be different. We're called to be distinctive. We're called to be focused on God. Paul sees himself as a worker. He sees the church, they're special. But what about the gospel? How does Paul see that? Paul's calling, as we've seen, was that he'd been set aside to tell people about the good news of Jesus. And if when he's talking about this, that, that he really gets carried away because most of what he says in those seven verses of his introduction are all about the gospel. And there's a sense in which some of the ideas in this introduction are things that he's going to pick up over the next few chapters as he seeks to explain in more detail what a wonderful thing the gospel is. But there are three ideas that he picks up in particular in these opening verses. And the first idea he picks up is that the gospel had been promised. You see that in verse 2 where Paul reminds us that the good news had been promised by prophets in the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament. Jewish people had been reading their scriptures for centuries. And one of the things that they'd been reading in them was that God had promised to send the Messiah to rescue people. The good news that Paul preached wasn't a new idea, but a fulfillment of a promise that had been made by God a long, long time ago. Jesus, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, the good news that he had made possible had not come out of nowhere. No, it was part of God's plan, a plan that God had been working on for a long time, a plan that God had been promising for a long time, a plan that was rooted in the real world, in real history, in real time. Now, this is important. This is important because there are some people who would kind of give you the idea that effectively Paul, maybe along with some others, kind of invented Christianity as we know it. They might not state it quite as boldly as that, 
But basically, the idea that they would put across is that they took the simple message that Jesus proclaimed in his earthly ministry, and they kind of changed it into something else, something that really was disconnected with with what Jesus was actually talking about. And what Paul is saying here is, is no. The message that that I am sharing is the message that God has been sharing and, and communicating to men and women for centuries. It's not a new idea. It's not an idea that has come out from nowhere. It's an idea that is rooted firmly and promised, promised in the Old Testament scriptures. It wasn't Paul's gospel. It was God's gospel, promised for ages. The second key idea about the good news is that it is about a person. It's about Jesus. Ultimately, Christianity is not about agreeing with a set of doctrines or beliefs, but of having a relationship of trust and faith in Jesus. Now, of course, Christians do believe things, and it's helpful to write them down, but those beliefs set out what Christians have found to be true through faith in the Lord Jesus. The good news had been promised through God's prophets, and this leads directly in verse 3 to what this good news is about. It's about Jesus, and he's no ordinary person. The first thing that Paul tells us about Jesus is that he's God's son. The second thing he tells us is that Jesus was rooted in real history. He was a descendant of David. You see that in verse 3. He had a normal human ancestry. As well as being genuinely divine, he was also genuinely human. And then in verse verse 4, Paul tells us, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Now, what's this saying? I mean, is it, for instance, suggesting that Jesus started out as a human being, some people would say that, who only became God's son after the resurrection? Is that what it's saying? Well, no, it's not. Remember, the first thing that Paul tells us about Jesus the first thing that Paul tells us about Jesus was that he was God's son. The subject of all those prophecies in the Old Testament. The key to understanding this verse are the two words, in power. The son of God, in power. And that's what was different after the resurrection. Jesus was always the son of God during his earthly ministry. He was always both human and divine. But during his earthly ministry, very few people noticed that. Very few indeed. I mean, people saw him as somebody who brought a message from God. People saw him as somebody who did remarkable things by the power of God. But they also saw him die, rejected by virtually everybody, mocked by virtually everybody. He was the son of God, but he was the son of God in weakness. But at the resurrection, everything changes. At the resurrection, Jesus is revealed as the son of God in power. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1? Some of you who are standing here will not taste death 
before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Those people were the people who witnessed the resurrection. They saw the Son of God in power after his death, after his resurrection, fully revealed not just as the human Jesus, but also as the divine Jesus, exercising his divine power in a way which he hadn't done previously. The gospel, the good news, the good news is about Jesus, but it's about the risen, powerful, triumphant Jesus, who's been victorious over the worst that the world and the devil could do to him, who's demonstrated that he's Lord of all, even the Lord of death. The good news then is all about Jesus, all about the risen Jesus. The good news was promised. The good news was about Jesus. But finally, the good news is for everyone. You'll have noticed that in verses 5 and 6, the word Gentile is used twice. The term Gentile was used by the Jews for anyone, no matter where they came from, who wasn't a Jew. For Jews, there were really two types of people. There was us. And there was everyone else. Now, they're not unique in that way. We tend to think that way as well, well, don't we? But for Jewish people, it was a very clear and a very distinct distinction. What Paul is undermining here, underlining here is that the good news about Jesus is not just for Jewish people. It's for everyone else as well. Paul had been set apart by God to tell people about the good news of Jesus, but specifically... He'd been specially equipped and gifted to bring the good news about Jesus to Gentiles. He says in verse 5, doesn't he, that he'd received grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. And of course, verse 6 reminds us that many of the people in the church in Rome were people who'd come to faith from a Gentile background. Now, Now, this is actually quite extraordinary because Paul was a Jew. He hadn't been programmed to think like this. This was not the way that he'd been brought up to think. This wasn't the way, the sort of teaching that he'd received when he'd been growing up in Judaism. Paul was a member of the religious faction known as the Pharisees. Now, Jesus described the Pharisees as a group of people who made it difficult for Jewish people to be faithful to God, never mind anyone else. That's what Jesus said about them. And that was Paul's background. Now, it's true that Jewish religious teachers did believe that it was possible for Gentiles to convert to Judaism. But they made it difficult. And that was Paul's background. And yet here he is saying that God's love is freely available to everyone. It's no longer sort of us and everybody else. The good news of Jesus is for everybody. And you know, if the good news hadn't been for people in Rome, it would never have made it to Sussex, would it? You know, it's because the good news is for everyone that, as a church, we're concerned to reach out to other people. It's why, you know, our goals for the coming this current year are all about being a welcoming church that's welcoming to people who are, who are not us. It's about evangelism. It's about communicating. It's about communicating what we know and believe to be true. 
is why we want to support Christian Outreach as a fellowship. Later on in our service, we're going to be praying for one of our mission partners. It's why we're involved with supporting uh, Christian outreach and mission across social divides through our involvement with things like Off the Fence uh, or, or, the, or the City Mission. It's why we're going to be having visits from four mission partners over the course of the summer so that we can learn more about the challenge and the opportunities of sharing God's good news with people in all sorts of parts of the world. The gospel, the good news, is, is not just for Sussex. It's for everyone and everyone everywhere. Like Paul, we're all workers. As members of the church, we're all special, called to be distinctively recognizable as followers of Jesus. But you know what pulls it all together is the good news of the risen, powerful Jesus. It's for us. It's for all of us. It's for everyone else. And that gives us a point to what we do for Jesus, does it not? We can't serve him everywhere, but we can serve him somewhere. We can't go to everyone, but we can reach out to someone with the promised news, the good news of Jesus, with the assurance that no matter who we go to, it's going to be relevant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for the good news of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it's been promised. Heavenly Father, thank you that it's been explained to us by Paul and others. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are beneficiaries of it. And Heavenly Father, it's something that we have to share. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd help us to do that. Amen.